Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspectives on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is building a diversifying alts portfolio and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Anton Pill, managing partner of JP Morgan Global Alternatives, and with me today are Jeff Geller, co-CIO of Multi-Asset Solutions from JP Morgan Asset Management, and Bernie McNamara, head of Global Real Assets, Omni Solutions, and Client Strategy, also from JP Morgan Asset Management. Jeff and Bernie, welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. It's a great topic, how we think about alternatives in a broader portfolio and how we actually construct portfolios using alternatives. But I thought it'd be useful before we get started for us to define what, for this podcast, what we mean by alternatives and kind of want to make sure our conversation kind of sticks around sort of these four broader main topics, private equity, private credit, real assets, and hedge funds. Let's use that as sort of a, or to help define what we're going to talk about today. But Jeff, let's start with yourself. You manage a very large, diverse pool of assets that has the ability to invest in almost every single asset class available in the world. How do you think about alternatives and how do you use alternatives in your portfolio? Thanks, Anton. Well, again, I mean, from our perspective, I think we tend to think about alternatives looking through the lens as a multi-asset class investor. So the first question we ask ourselves is, what's the investment problem we're solving for? Is this about return seeking or is it about diversification and risk reduction? The next thing we need to think about, I mean, especially given what most of our clients are faced with, if you look at what's implied by the long-term capital market assumptions, that a diversified public markets in 60-40 is going to deliver five and a half, and most of our clients are looking for seven and a half to eight net of fees. 95% of the discussions we have with institutional clients is more focused on return seeking. So really, how do we use alternatives really to close that gap between five and a half and eight? Right. And when you look at that, does the current macro environment play a role in that? In other words, do you envision having a more permanent allocation of alternatives simply because the current targets of traditional public markets don't quite get you there? Do you envision that that changes as public markets well, again, valuations I mean, change? When we think about our long-term capital markets, when we build it, when I say a 5.5% on a 60-40 allocation, that's looking at the next 10 to 15 years. So we're basically saying the return from public markets is going to be lower over the next 10 to 15 years. So the focus is really probably more on earning liquidity premiums. If anything, we're investing with a longer horizon. The focus, given that it's on return seeking, is focusing on private equity and private credit, where we can, in the case of private credit, you're making commitments to investments that between the investment and harvest period, you're looking at anywhere between three to five years. Private equity, depending on the mix of assets, time horizon between six to 10 years, that I think that's really where the focus has been to kind of help close that gap. And I think if you consider your question in the context of just the fundamental challenges that investors have in their portfolios, which are well-documented, low-yielding bonds, now the flip side of that potentially with rising rates, volatile public equity markets across the globe, low growth prospects generally in the developed markets, the threat of inflation somewhere on the horizon. I think, to your point, that probably does argue for a more permanent allocation to alternatives and potentially a higher one too. Right, especially in an environment where liquidity is getting removed, central mm-hmm. bank policies are beginning to shift towards mm-hmm. removing liquidity from the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Having the ability to own these assets 
for a longer period of time and picking up that illiquidity premium, however that's defined, as another source of return that otherwise wouldn't be captured. The other thing we need to think about when we're allocating, especially given the focus on return-seeking, is number one, how are we getting the right balance between risk and return, and really what's the appropriate funding source when we do that? So, for instance, when we allocate to real estate, that given our more constructive view on the U.S. economy tactically, we feel very comfortable being exposed to core real estate in the U.S. And if anything, even have looked at some value-added opportunities as well in real estate. But again, that allocation today would be coming out of bonds. If you turn the clock back to 2010, when valuation levels were very, very depressed— and that you were actually finding valuations trading at a discount to appraised value in early 2010. And we thought the forward-looking return for owning core real estate was 15-plus percent. We were selling equities to buy to buy core real estate. So again, we're always, for everything we buy, we have to sell something else in a multi-asset class portfolio. Private equity is simple. You know, when we sell, you know, if we're going to buy private equity, we're funding it out of our equity portfolio, even though... You know, you don't have mark-to-marks like you do in public markets. Clearly, there's more embedded leverage. There's more risk. So we say, well, how can we balance that risk in a portfolio? That's where we might look at hedge funds and long-short equity managers who bring down the risk profile of the equity portfolio as the private equity is taking up the risk. The other thing when we talk about allocating to private credit, we look at it on a net-of-fee basis and given the risk we're taking— why, you know, the natural funding source would obviously be high yield and extended credit. So we have to evaluate what risks are we taking on and why on a net of fee basis is this better than holding high yield. So in your case, you've been thinking about it almost in a like for like. Yeah. And Bernie, have you seen something similar on the real asset side when you've seen investors come in and look at real estate and other real assets, infrastructure, et cetera? Have you seen a similar pattern that they've been really focusing on funding some of the lower risk items out of fixed income, or is it have they've already separated themselves from thinking of it in a traditional asset? Sure, context? I think it's a bit of a mix, right? If you look at alternatives more broadly, as just that, which is alternatives to either fixed income or equities, and there's a spectrum. You've got your fixed income alternatives being private credit, certain hedge fund strategies, as Jeff described, private equity being your equity alternative. The reality is that real assets are somewhere in between, a bit of a hybrid alternative for investors who are looking for, you know, the bond-like steady income that you might get from core real estate, but with a bit of equity-like upside potential. Have you seen people's interest in real assets increase as sort of the economy is potentially entering a more reflationary environment? maybe even inflationary environment? Have we seen a change in demand for some of the more inflation-hedged income-producing assets, whether that be real estate, infrastructure, other real assets, leasebacks, things like that? No question. No question we've seen a pickup in that. I would say around real estate generally, although one note would be that real estate inflation protection qualities I would say very much depend on where we are in the supply cycle. If you have full buildings, it's easier to pass on inflationary increases than if you have large vacancies. Fortunately, we're at a point in the cycle where vacancy is pretty low across markets. But I would say it's also driven a lot of interest in infrastructure in particular, where often the inflationary 
pass-through is more explicit. For example, with regulated utilities in certain markets where you have a dollar-for-dollar pass-through or in the case of, for example, the UK market, a pound-for-pound pass-through. Right. And Jeff, have you noticed yourself looking at alternatives as a potential source of an inflation hedge? Or is that are you thinking much longer term out? It's interesting. We thought that given where we are in the cycle and given that you're likely to see wage pressure with global growth and, and earnings generally improving and corporate profitability and, and labor capacity coming down. But net net there really has not been a big demand for inflation hedges. So we thought with people more people would be looking and clients would be looking for multi-asset solutions that were addressing in- inflation sensitivity. But we really haven't seen that. That's interesting. We've seen, I think, in some of the, on the real estate side, core investing, which traditionally, which actually, to your point, Bernie, I think on a spread basis looks attractive, on an absolute basis looks, at least on a historical context, yields look and cap rates look quite low. But because of higher low vacancy rates and economy that inflation that seems to be driven by an economy that's improving rather than sort of exogenous commodity mm-hmm. issues, that the amount of people reducing their core exposures is actually kind of slowed down dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's because they're sort of keeping that in their back pocket as an inflation hedge rather than tips or something else. Yeah, I, get, I think for us where we are, hold, we still are holding overweight at you know, positions in core real estate tactically. And again, it's really more around, less about inflation and more about a generally improving U.S. economy. So unless you think unemployment's going to pick up dramatically and the economy is generally improving, you want to be long core real estate. The question is, I wouldn't sell equities to buy it. You'd right. sell bonds yeah. to buy it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're seeing uh, that too. Mostly a fixed income replacement right. at this point in the cycle. Right. Which kind of makes sense with a fixed income right. where it's at. We are definitely at an inflection point and the mm-hmm. uncertainty around that makes that income a little bit more difficult to source. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit, shift gears a little bit to talking about private versus public or liquid versus illiquid. We've seen tremendous growth and to some degree access to private markets that potentially didn't either didn't exist before or was highly constrained to institutional buyers of a particular ilk, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Jeff, talk to us a little bit about how you sort of think about private investing and how is private investing today different than it was perhaps five or 10 years ago? And how do you handicap private investing versus public investments? Well, I think the the interesting comparison is looking at uh, private credit versus high yield. So when we are, number one, when people accessed private credit, initially, I'd say that the base strategy that people would get involved with was middle market lending, which is the closest thing to investing in high yield. You can be diversified away from energy, which is advantageous. You can be uh, diversified away from some of the interest rate sensitivity of the high yield market. But more or less, the risks, the broad risks are going to be similar I think what's really happened, what's been most interesting about private credit from our perspective, is that, number one, the risk continuum and both what you can do geographically has varied. The opportunities have moved much more toward Europe right now. So when we work with our colleagues in J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, sourcing private credit opportunities, there are more opportunities in Europe as banks are shedding either non-core or less productive assets. So the ability to buy either pools of performing or performing and non-performing loans and to be able to earn 
low to high double-digit returns in a way that's another way to play an improving economy in Europe, diversifying away from the U.S. economy, which is really where the bulk of our risk is, is very appealing. And when you think of private investing, is there a hurdle rate in your mind that if you were going to own private credit over high yield for something similar, Mm -hmm. like I'm just making this number up, but I want to get paid 2% extra for credit and Mm -hmm. an extra 4% for equity. Do you have sort of a back of the envelope? Yeah, I'd say when we allocate away from high yield into private credit, we are doing it with the expectation that over a three to five year period, we're going to pick up three to 4% over high yield. And again, I think that the risk profile is not dramatically higher I mean, generally, the amount of leverage is a half a turn. The fees tend to be lower. There are hurdle rates before you get paid. So it's a much more investor-friendly structure for clients. You see something similar on the private equity side? In the case of private equity, I think there, I think that we are, again, everyone is targeting for that top quartile experience. Mm-hmm. I think given the risks and the time that you're investing, if we didn't believe that we could generate at least a 5 to 6% return over public markets, net of fees, we wouldn't do it. Again, part of our confidence is the confidence that we have in our private equity group and the successful experience they've had in terms of being able to source both direct co-investments and secondaries, which have really generated a large share of the excess return. So again, when we talk about private equity, I think it's unique to what we think we can access at J.P. Morgan. Yeah, so Bernie, as we're thinking about the broader publicly traded markets, such as REITs, BDCs, also known as business development companies, and other public vehicles, how do you think about public markets versus private markets? Sure. The obvious difference between the two, listed and unlisted, is the liquidity profile. But of course, there's a range along the spectrum. Clearly, with REITs, you have daily liquidity. But with that comes the challenge of generally higher correlations to the broader equity markets and more volatility as well, as opposed to when most investors are looking to access the classic benefits of real estate, I would say diversification and low correlation are at the top of the list, which are more readily accessible through the private markets with core real estate typically being executed in an open-end format where you have some liquidity, not daily, but perhaps monthly or quarterly. Now, as you move out the risk-return spectrum, that is more like private equity investing in closed-end opportunistic strategies where there is a long lockup and you better be earning an illiquidity premium commensurate with that longer lockup. Whereas at the core end of the spectrum, it may be a much narrower spread. Right. I mean, one of the things we've seen on the REIT side versus private real estate, for example, is that there can be massive dispersions between the actual values of the underlying buildings and the value of the overall publicly traded trust because of different perceptions around or or income, broader equity valuations. And you end up oftentimes a very large disconnect between REIT valuations and the underlying buildings that they actually own or underlying real assets. Which creates a buying opportunity and obviously the ability to be more tactical in the REIT space. I would say the other thing that we're seeing from some investors who wrestle with the challenges of queues associated with private market real estate or other real assets 
is treating more liquid real assets, REITs, listed infrastructure, other categories as, in effect, a staging portfolio, where they get some exposure to the underlying real assets while they wait to draw down into the private markets. I would just kind of comment on REITs, because I think what's interesting for us is, again, we have many clients that let us buy direct real estate, but some clients that don't want any illiquid assets in the portfolio, and the only option is REITs. So again, the overall backdrop, positive view on the U.S. economy, continuing trend. You know, if you want to be long, you know, core real estate because you're comfortable with the ability to raise rents and the underlying collateral, you're comfortable with the underlying collateral and the ability to raise rents in terms of the properties that support the REIT investment. But the other thing we do have to take into account, there are times where REITs are more highly correlated with equities and times they're more highly correlated with bonds. The early stages of a rising rate environment, if we thought the Fed was going to be very, very aggressive in rate hikes from here, we'd want to be underweight REITs. I mean, our view is that this hiking cycle is likely to go on for three to four years as opposed to six to eight quarters. So that's not a risk that we are concerned with. The other is REITs, as Bernie said, are more highly correlated with equity. Well, again, given that we've got a positive view on being long-risk assets and overweight equities, we're not as concerned with the equity sensitivity in REITs. But still, the backdrop of the positive economic environment for the U.S. that makes us comfortable is a starting point of looking at both REITs as well as direct real estate. And one of the things we tend to look at for adding alternatives in general to portfolios, even if I think of the hedge fund space, is always making sure we understand the embedded leverage in each of these sort of alternative asset classes. I think oftentimes people forget that the more leverage you have, it almost doesn't matter what asset class it is, by definition, the more risk you're taking. And generally, the more you're going to end up being correlated with the global risk assets. And so you end up kind of where you started, which we see oftentimes the difference between core real estate investing that might have 25% leverage versus value-added real estate investing, which in some cases it goes as high as 60 or 70 And what you realize fairly quickly is that the correlations of the value add to equity markets and other risk assets starts rising, even though the asset may not necessarily have been correlated. That source of leverage ends up being a common theme Mm -hmm. that translates through the broader portfolios. One thing that we've focused on, and you see it in both in terms of the deals that have been sourced from the private equity group, as well as J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, that when you look at the basic underlying business activity and the ability to generate growth, it's not being driven by financial engineering and leverage. It's not that there isn't embedded leverage, but if it's totally basically leverage, it's going to drive your ability to make money. It's probably not an attractive investment. Right. Yeah, and I would say broadly the real estate market learned from the very dear pain of the financial crisis and have been both more moderate and sensible on the use of leverage. And some of that has been driven by the banks as well, who have tightened their lending standards. Have you seen, as the market's entering sort of, as you mentioned, Jeff, a longer-term tightening cycle, is your fundamental approach to alternative asset classes today, do you find yourself ultimately having different weightings than four or five years ago in a sort of more accommodative market from the Fed? Or has there been, are there visible shifts there that you can think of? It's less about that than just looking at where rates are right now. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges where if, if short rates were at five, the way you might evaluate some of the hedge fund strategies is very different with short rates at zero. And I think 
One of the things that we have found as a challenge is, quite frankly, looking at most hedge fund strategies in terms of a 2-in-20 environment where you're trying to generate an excess return versus zero, and you're not starting off with short rates at five, you're starting with short rates at zero. So it's very, very hard to, on a net of fee basis, given this low interest rate environment, it's likely to be with us for some time to generate the types of returns that we need of the 75 to 8%. Yeah, And we've seen that in the broader hedge fund universe that sort of a number of the managers that were sort of in the 8 to 10 space in terms of returns today are closer to the 6 to 8% because cash rates are yet low and Mm -hmm. their generation of alpha may be fairly consistent, but it's alpha over cash returns. And since those cash returns are so low, there there has to be a change in the return expectations. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any shifts, Bernie, on the real asset side? Have people... Have they moved more from value added to core in the last five years? Have have the lessons been learned from a decade ago? Are we seeing that implemented in people's portfolios today as the Fed's beginning to shift gears and we are seeing some of these cap rates at low levels? Sure. I would say the question we get most frequently or one of the most frequently asked questions from investors these days is, well, isn't now the time to move out the risk return spectrum within U.S. real estate? Because I've enjoyed those mid-teen returns from core over the last few years. So now's the time to go to value add or opportunistic so that I can keep getting more bang for my real estate buck. And I think, depending on the execution, that could actually be a challenge for investors. Because if you have a view that we're in the more mature stages of the U.S. real estate cycle, and you're worried about a correction at some point on the horizon, and I'm not predicting one in the near term, But if you're worried about that change in pricing for your core investment, well, you better be doubly concerned about it for your value add and opportunistic, particularly those that have long lead times associated with them. For example, long lead time development, because you could be delivering a property into a very different economic picture and leasing picture and experience more pain at that end of the spectrum. But I would say to the credit of the industry, both on the investor side and the manager side, what we're starting to see within real assets, and Jeff, maybe you have a perspective on this more broadly within alternatives, is investors starting to think a bit more holistically about the balance of investments between their core holdings and their non-core. So between more income-producing, lower volatility type of exposures and more opportunistic capital appreciation more tactical, if you will, allocations, and trying to bring a bit more science to that portfolio construction as they have for years in their equity and fixed income holdings, where if you look broadly, investors have more or less a 70-30 mix between core exposures within equities and fixed income and non-core exposures. And we're starting to see that trend port to the real assets portfolio as well, and I think the broader alternatives universe as well, having a long-term strategic allocation that you shape on the edges through time. Yeah, and I think, again, this concern about where we are in the cycle, even as we have uh, contact with managers running more value-added real estate funds, uh, private funds, the focus is really away from development risk, and it's more can they buy an existing property and refurbish the property or make changes that they could create short value. Cycle. It's really shorten the cycle yep. as opposed to, you know, building a new mm-hmm. office building in midtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing that I'm always amazed by on the real asset front is that a lot of people look at those yields and try to compare them directly to fixed income, when in reality, 
the income associated with a building is dependent on leases that usually have built-in step-up clauses annually. And frankly, in many cases, the turnover of leases in a positive, in a booming environment, lease prices may rise and your cap rate may go up, even though the value, the cap rates being low doesn't necessarily, there's only one way that they can go up, which is that the prices decline. They can actually go up with income going up from the buildings themselves. And I think as people have allocated out of fixed income into real assets, they've sometimes made that comparison too quickly without realizing that the actual coupon equivalent in real assets will actually move over time and can move very rapidly, especially in a bullish environment. Right. Back to the point of real assets, particularly at the core end of the spectrum, being more of a hybrid alternative between fixed income and equities, where you have some upside potential on top of your coupon-like return. Perhaps, Jeff, one last question. Private credit, is that context, it's clearly grown over the last decade, sort of under bank banks under tighter regulation, newer markets that traditionally may have been syndicated out or have been held on bank balance sheet, as sort of regulatory environments have tightened, those have sort of been thrust into the private credit market. Do you think a decade from now or 20 years from now, private credit is simply a new asset allocation asset class similar to private equity? Or is this more of an allocation game in the next five to 10 years, that is simply a result of changing regulatory environment and? Well, there are two parts. I think middle market lending, which is kind of the core that people tend to think of, I think is something that you'll always see. I mean, these are relatively smaller borrowers that cannot come to the public markets. And there's the question, do the banks step in the way they did before? Is it economical for them to step in for many of these smaller loans? I think the opportunities that you're seeing as far as in Europe of banks dealing with a tighter regulatory environment, and they're just beginning that process of shedding less productive and non-core assets, is a phenomenon that is likely to play out over a period of years. And plus what we've seen, and again, we've been allocating to a variety of private credit strategies over the last seven years, you know, the opportunities move even within Europe where, you know, the opportunities might have been almost exclusively in the UK originally. Now you're seeing more of those opportunities on the continent, more opportunities perhaps in Italy. There are uh, middle market lending strategies that we've seen to high quality borrowers in Spain and Portugal that you might not have necessarily seen or accessed that market. So I think in some cases the opportunities are moving and I think you need to be somewhat opportunistic. Right. Bernie, so when you think about real estate, you mentioned core and extended sort of real estate. How do you think about diversifying a real asset portfolio or a private real estate portfolio? Sure, sure. I think if you ask most investors, again, why are they turning to real estate? Historically, that's been for diversification versus the more traditional parts of their portfolio, their stocks and bonds. But often their real estate exposure will be concentrated in their home market domestically for U.S. investors. But Again, drawing parallels to the other parts of their portfolio, if you look at investors' equity holdings, they typically have 50 to 60% of their equity exposure in foreign equities. And I think we see a similar trend unfolding within real estate, particularly as the scale, transparency, and liquidity of the overseas markets, Europe's been there broadly, developed Europe for a while, but in particular, the developed markets of the Asia-Pacific regions, 
particularly as those markets mature, it makes sense to have a globally diversified real estate allocation. And I would take that comment one step further, which is a globally diversified real assets allocation, meaning bringing in other real estate-like investments, whether it's infrastructure or transport or timber and farmland under the broader real assets umbrella. And Jeff, I would imagine that that extends more broadly to your larger alternatives allocation as well. Yeah, I mean, again, I think in looking at real assets, the question is, what is it there for? Are we betting on effectively or positioning for continued growth in the U.S. economy, where the focus would be much more on core real estate as a substitute for owning a blend of investment grade and and core bonds in our portfolio? If we were looking at inflation sensitivity and that was a bigger issue, I think that's where you begin to expand beyond that in, in a more material way. Before we move on, maybe we can talk a little bit about the tactical shifts that you're thinking about in your portfolio for the next six to 12 months and some of the new directions you're taking. Yeah, I think for us, I think that, again, if institutional clients, more of them are thinking about this area like we are, I think it's going to be less about alternatives as an appendage where the consultant said do five, five, and five because that's, you know, <laughs> that's a nice put five, they're nice round numbers. I think they're going to be much more targeted and purposeful allocations. And I think what you'll see is increasingly institutions are going to do more of what we've done at J.P. Morgan and the multi-asset group of saying, you know, what am I trying to achieve? What risks am I comfortable with? What's the time horizon I'm enter- that I'm focused on? You know, am I an underfunded active pension plan that's going to be in this business for the next 10, 15 years? Or am I overfunded and I think I'm going to try to put the plan to an insurance company in the next three years? Again, I think what they'll do is going to be very purposeful and very, very targeted. So I think we're somewhat ahead of the curve there, where I think institutions, to the extent that they access these markets, they'll think about it, I think, more the way we do. I think that's well said. I think more and more investors are looking at it through that lens, which is objective-driven portfolio construction, again, that they've been doing for decades in the more traditional parts of their portfolio. And I think you'll see more and more investors think of the alternatives allocation within the context of the overall portfolio. I was with a client recently who I think framed the issue well, as we're helping them look at building out a more diversified allocation. And he said, at the end of this exercise, I don't want to end up with a diversified allocation. I want to end up with a diversifying one, meaning don't just build it in isolation, build it in the context of the overall portfolio and our overall plan objectives. I think that's well said, and I think that's a good place to wrap up. I think, as has been mentioned, entering a new environment here with the Fed and the longer term raising rates, with liquidity globally turning around and perhaps starting to shrink, the need for adding alternatives in a more traditional portfolio context is becoming more and more clear. And feel free to reach out to JP Morgan with any questions on how we can help you accomplish that with your particular goals and objectives in mind. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website, recorded on May 12, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. 
nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the marketing name for the asset management businesses of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and their affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EEA jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 19760-1586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 20112355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited, in Australia to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Company. All rights reserved.